Ministry speaker presenter Lyle Southwell presenting the ancient codes of Bible prophecy in his live series called The Prophetic Code. You'll be amazed as he cracks the ancient codes of Bible prophecy in ways you have never heard before. All right, let's bow our heads and let's begin with prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for your great love. We thank you for your care for each one of us as individuals. We thank you for the interest that you show in us and we pray for the blessing and the presence of your Holy Spirit now to be very close to us as we take up this most important subject, a subject which, in which your character is at stake. We pray that you'll guide us, we pray that you'll bless us as we look at what the Bible says about the subject of hellfire. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Let me begin this evening with a small story. This story happened some time ago in the United States down in the Deep South where you have the good old boys down in the Deep South. And you had Bill and Joe and they were two young lads and they decided one evening that they were going to go and raid Old Man Johnson's Peanuts. And so they're out there and it's after dark and they're raiding his Peanuts. And old man Johnson, he thinks that he hears something outside. So he bails out the front door with a double-barrel shotgun. You know how that works, you know? Well, these two young boys, they see him coming. They grab their bags of peanuts and they're off. They're running into town. Running into town as fast as they can. Run, running down the main street. They run down the main street. And they're like looking for a place to hide. And they see that when they come to the cemetery, there's a stone wall around the cemetery. So they climb up over the stone wall, plop down on the inside. They're all out of breath, but they've got a spot where they can hide. And then they began to divide up the loot. One for you and one for me. Meanwhile, old man Johnson has sent his son to, down into town to find out if he can chase these young lads down. And he's wandering down the main street. And as he walks past the cemetery, he hears voices on the other side of the fence. One for you and one for me. And so in terror, he goes running home and he says to his dad, he's like, Dad, Dad, you've got to come down to the cemetery. God and the devil are dividing up the souls of the dead. <laughs> well, it so happened as they were crawling over the fence that um, they managed to drop a couple on the outside. And by the time that um, old man Johnson came into town, Bill and Joe on the other side of the fence had finished dividing up the loot. And Bill says to Joe, he's like, well, that's it. That's the last one. And Joe says, well, what are you going to do about those two on the outside? And he's like, oh, don't worry about those. He says, you can have them. And so Joe's like, oh, that's good. He says, I'm going to go and get those two and roast them with the rest. (laughs) Which goes to show that when we come to the subject of hellfire today, we can have a little bit of fun on the subject, but largely speaking, hellfire has really become a subject about which people either tell jokes or worse, they use it as an expletive. Isn't that pretty much how it is? We need to find out what is hellfire all about and who really holds the keys to hellfire. Now, of course, the keys are a major symbol. In fact, you'll find the keys on the Vatican flag because the Pope claims to be the holder of those keys, but he's not the first person who claimed to hold the keys. 
there was a Roman god before him by the name of Janus. Janus, the god of the keys, and he was a two-faced god. He had one face going one way and the other face going the other way. He held the keys of heaven and of hell. And depending which face you came to was which door he would unlock and either put you down here or unlock another one and put you down there. He was unique because he was a Roman god. The Romans didn't really have their own gods. They used the Greek gods and renamed them. But this one was uniquely Roman. But he wasn't the only one who claimed to have uh, to hold those keys. Here he is with his two faces. And by the way, this is where we get the word janitor from because a janitor has a big wad of keys hanging off his belt, doesn't he? Yeah, that's the origin. He's not the only one who claimed to have the keys. You see, there was also Pluto, the god of the underworld. He claimed to have those keys and to be able to unlock the underworld and bring people down to be with him. Then there was Cybele, the Mother Earth goddess. She claimed to have the keys. And of course, today, we have the Freemasons who claim to have the keys, the key of Hiram, they call it, and they place it in a different context again. It's interesting when it comes to Freemasonry because Freemasonry by uh, nature and by history has been uh, somewhat opposed to uh, the Vatican um, in the lower levels but when you climb up into the higher levels, you find somewhat of a different story, and I'll show you a couple of things on that in just a moment. However, the Vatican has claimed to hold these keys for a long time and has exercised them down through history to manipulate the governments of our world. And we looked at some examples of it uh, quite some nights ago now. We looked at Henry IV of Germany, the most powerful ruler in the world in his time. When... The Pope exercised his keys and he locked heaven and opened hell to all of his kingdom. He went down to see the Pope at the castle of Canossa and stood outside in the snow for three days doing penance before he was even fit to be in the presence of the Pope. And of course, another example that we looked at was King John of England who took his crown off and placed it at the feet of the Pope's representative, he was so afraid of those keys when they were exercised against him. And he gave the kingdom of England to the Vatican and rented it back off him for a thousand marks a year. And so see, these are some of the, the, the examples that we have in history. And of course, nothing has changed. We come down to our time. And uh, here we find uh, uh, this statement here is he who wrote the letter from the Vatican during the 2004 election, declaring Catholic politicians such as Senator Kerry, who opposed the civil enactment of church teachings, were to be barred from receiving communion, which is another way of saying they were to be barred from receiving salvation. Now, of course, we mentioned that the Freemasons claim to hold the keys and their symbols pop up in all the most unusual places. You find it right here. And you sort of have to wonder, well, whereabouts, why did, why, why are these ones right here? You see, Freemasonry by the, the, the term freedom is the concept behind Freemasonry and freedom of thought. And yet you find it in places that in many ways promote the opposite of that. So we have to ask ourselves the question then, who really does actually hold these keys? Do you want to know the answer? The answer is found in Revelation chapter 1. Let's turn our Bibles to Revelation chapter 1. Revelation chapter 1 and verse 18. In fact, let's go back to verse 17. 
Verse 17, John says, And when I saw him, that's Jesus, I fell at his feet as dead. And he laid his right hand upon me, saying unto me, Fear not, I am the first and the last. I am he that lives and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And have the keys of hell and the grave. So who does the Bible say owns those keys? Jesus owns those keys. Is that good news? Do you think Jesus will misuse those keys? Will he, will he try and manipulate us with those keys? No, because he gives us perfect freedom of choice. He will never, ever violate our freedom of choice. It's the most sacred thing in the universe because without the freedom of choice, love does not exist. And so when we find that Jesus has the keys of hell and the grave, it raises a whole bunch of questions that I often get asked in a series like this. And these are some of the commonly asked questions that I get asked. What is hell and whereabouts is it? Uh, What is the fate of the wicked? Will a God of love torture sinners eternally? And will the fires of hell ever burn the wickedness out of sinners? Now, I mentioned last night that the concept of hellfire that has been abused by Christians has created more atheists than any other subject. And it's not hard to understand why when you read some of the concepts that are being put out there by Christianity. I read some of these things and I'm thinking, wow, what kind of a God do these people serve? You know, here's a statement right here from Tim LaHaye and Jerry B. Jenkins. And this is in a novel and it describes a person who is lost. They did not give their life to God and God speaks to them. And God says, death is too good for you. You are sentenced to eternity in the lake of fire. And so you have non-Christians and they look at something like this and some Christians and they look at something like this and they say, well, whoa, whoa, wait, wait a minute. If God is like that, if that is God's character, I'd never do that to someone. So I'm more righteous than God. And so God does not exist. You see where the problem comes in? And, and you might say, well, you know, maybe this is a, you know, a small little book. No, they sold 66 million copies of these books right here. So it's a major question that we need to ask. Let's turn in our Bibles to Matthew chapter 13. Matthew chapter 13. And let's begin to delve into this particular subject. Matthew chapter 13, and we will start in verse 41 where the Bible says this, and hold your finger here in Matthew 13, there's page 397. We're going to spend a little bit of time here. In verse 41, the Bible says, The Son of Man shall send forth his angels, and they shall gather out of his kingdom all things that offend, and those which do iniquity, and shall cast them into a furnace of fire. There shall be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Then shall the righteous shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their Father, who has ears to hear, Let him hear. Now, does the Bible speak about fire in this passage? Does it? You're all very quiet this evening. Yeah, it speaks about fire. And the Bible also speaks about the righteous shining forth in the kingdom of their father. Isn't that so? So here we find right at the beginning that, yes, God does speak about fire. And yes, God does speak about heaven. There is a hellfire to shun and there is a heaven 
to win. But in understanding hellfire, we need to understand what is this all about? How does hellfire reveal to us the love and the character of God? So as we begin into this subject, we're going to look at two things that God, that Jesus never taught in relationship to hellfire. Two things that he never taught. Number one, that a disembodied soul separates from the body at the time of death. Now, we looked at that the other day, didn't we? All right? Jesus never taught that. The second thing is that the wicked suffer eternal torment as soon as they die. So if Jesus did not teach these two things, then we have to ask ourselves the question, what did Jesus teach? Let's turn to Matthew chapter 5. And we'll start reading in verse... 29, that's page 392. 392, 393, the Bible says in verse 29, it says, if your right eye offends you, pluck it out and throw it from you. It is profitable for you that one of your members should perish and not that your what? Whole body should be thrown where? So what does the Bible say is going into hell? A disembodied soul? Did Jesus say a disembodied soul is going into hell? No, Jesus said very plainly, very clearly, that a whole body is going in there. If your right hand offends you, cut it off, throw it from you. It is profitable for you that one of your members should perish, and not that your whole body should be cast into hell. The Bible speaks about hands, it speaks about feet, it speaks about eyes, it speaks about the body. Jesus did not teach that a disembodied soul separates from the body at the time of death and wanders off to hellfire if that soul has been an evil soul. Well, if that's not what Jesus taught, then we need to look at what did Jesus teach. And the second one of these statements here leads us to our first great fact in relationship to hellfire. We are going to look at four facts this evening in relationship to hellfire. Here comes the first one. Fact number one. The unsaved do not go to any place of punishment as soon as they die, but are reserved in the grave until the day of judgment to be punished. We looked at it last night. Not everybody was here last night. So let's look at it again from the Bible. I promised you that there was a passage right here that we were going to look at three nights in a row, didn't I? Well, we're going to look at it again. And before we do... We're going to go back to Matthew chapter 13. There's Matthew 13, verse 24. Another parable put forth he unto them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a man which sowed good seed in his field. So here you have a man, and he's going to go out and grow um, some crops. How many of you like to grow a vegetable garden? Oh, wow, there's a whole bunch of you. I love growing vegetables. I don't get flowers. I can't eat them. But I love to grow vegetables. So this guy, he goes out and he plants all of this seed. And while he's planting all of this seed, that night an enemy comes along and plants all over it weeds. Now, I'm tolerably good at growing vegetables, but I excel at growing weeds. You know the feeling? Anybody else here in the same boat? Yeah, okay, there's a few of us in the same boat. All right. Now, wouldn't it be a whole lot worse if somebody comes through and actually plants them? They seem to plant themselves so easily. So somebody came through. And so his servants come to him a little while down. um, And they said, do you want us to go and weed them? And he's like, no, they're they're intermingled too closely with the wheat. He said uh, in verse 30, let both grow together 
until the harvest. And in the time of the harvest, I will say to the reapers, gather you together first the weeds, bind them into bundles to burn them, but gather the wheat into my barn. So when did the farmer say to separate the wheat from the weeds? At what time? The harvest, okay. So the disciples didn't understand what Jesus was saying right here, and so they asked him about it. And so Jesus explains it. Come down with me to verse 37. In verse 37, Jesus answered and said unto them, He that sowed the good seed is the Son of Man. That's Jesus. The field is the world. The good seed are the children of the kingdom, and the weeds are the children of the wicked ones. So that makes sense so far, which language we all understand. The enemy that sowed them is who? The devil. The harvest is when? The end of the world. And the reapers are who? The angels. As therefore the weeds are gathered and burned in the fire, so shall it be when? At the end of the world. All right. So here's what we find straight away. The Bible says that hellfire doesn't take place right now. It points us to a time at the end of the world. The Son of Man will send out his angels, etc. We already read that passage down through there. So if they're not in hellfire right now, whereabouts are the wicked? We studied this last night, didn't we? Where does the Bible say they are? Let's read it here from 2 Peter chapter 2 and verse 9, where the Bible says, The Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptations and to what? Reserve the unjust unto the day of judgment to be punished. So the Bible very clearly says that the wicked are reserved unto, that's future tense, isn't it? The day of judgment to be punished. The Bible says this is an event that takes place in the future and that's what Jesus just said right here, isn't he? Yeah, and it makes sense when you stop and think about it. I mean, seriously, God is a God of justice. Let's say that you have somebody in Adam's day who lives a decent life, but he refuses to give his heart to God. God's not going to force anyone to be saved, so God's like, okay, that's it, and he throws them into into hellfire. And 6,000 years later, you have a whole bunch of terrible people that we've had in our time that have come along and created all kinds of havoc, you know, Stalin, Hitler, Saddam Hussein, whoever you want to throw into that bucket... And they burn for 6,000 years less. Is that that just? We we as human beings, we we know that's not just, right? Yeah. Okay, so the Bible says, no, they're reserved in the grave until the end. Um, In fact, um, to make sure that they, we know that they're reserved, to make sure they're reserved in the grave, let's go to the Gospel of John, chapter 5, page 431, and we will read verse 28, where Jesus says, marvel not at this, for the hour is coming in, with, in the which all that are where? Where did the Bible say they are? In the graves shall hear his voice and shall come forth those that have done good to the resurrection of life and those that have done evil to the resurrection of damnation. Now once again, we note that if you are already alive, you don't need to be resurrected, do you? Resurrection is only necessary if you are dead and the Bible clearly says that the wicked are in the graves waiting for the resurrection. That is where they are reserved. Of course, we found 
Matthew chapter 16, the Bible says that Jesus comes with all of his angels. And then it goes on and says, and then he shall reward every man according to his works. No rewards right now. We also found Jesus said in Matthew chapter 20, Revelation chapter 22, Behold, I come quickly and my reward is what? Is with me. Jesus doesn't hand any rewards out until the end of time. And this leads us to our next great fact in relationship to hellfire. And that is this one right here. None of the unsaved will be cast into hellfire until after the second coming of Jesus. Nobody is there right now. In fact, let's read how the Bible describes hellfire in Revelation chapter 21. Revelation chapter 21 and verse 8. And here the Bible says, But the fearful and the unbelieving, unbelieving, the abominable, the murderers, the whoremongers, the sorcerers, the idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the what? Now, let me point out to, the, out to you the obvious at this particular point. You cannot have a second death until you have had a second life. Isn't that so? You're gone very quiet. Does that make sense? It's really obvious, isn't it? You can't have a second death until you've had a second life. Therefore, we know that before hellfire, there is a resurrection that takes place. Because you have to have a second life. To have a second life, you have to have a resurrection. That's what the Bible speaks about as the resurrection of damnation. So how are the wicked thrown into hellfire? Well, let's read it over in Revelation chapter 20. In Revelation chapter 20, at the end of the thousand years, in verse 7, Satan is loosed out of his prison. How is he set free from his prison? By the resurrection of damnation or the resurrection of the wicked. Now he is able to go out and to deceive people again, which he could not do for that thousand years because there was nobody here to deceive him. The Bible says, And he shall go out to deceive the nations which are in the four quarters of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle the number of whom is as the sand of the sea. And they go up on the surface of the earth and surround the camp of the saints in the beloved city, that's the New Jerusalem, and fire comes down from God out of heaven and devours them. So the Bible says this is where hellfire takes place. So let's look at the sequence right here. The end of the thousand years. You have the resurrection, sorry, you have the resurrection of damnation. The wicked are raised back to life. You have the last judgment. This is the last act that ensures that sin will never come back to the universe again. The devil deceives the wicked at that particular time into thinking that they can take the city, the new Jerusalem, which God has brought down to this earth. So they go up on the surface of the earth. They surround the new Jerusalem, the Bible says, and hellfire pours down upon them. Notice what the Bible is giving to us right here. One of the two most significant things you can find in Bible prophecy is time and place. The Bible has just given you the time period of when hellfire takes place and it has also given you the geographical location. The location of hellfire is the surface of the earth around the new Jerusalem. Let's look at some other Bible verses to back this up. Let's turn in our Bibles to 2 Peter chapter 3 on page 491. 
2 Peter chapter 3, and we will read verse 7. The Bible says, But the heavens, that speaks about the atmospheric heavens, and the earth, which are now, which exist right now, by the same word, are kept in store, reserved unto fire against the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. So the Bible says that this earth is set aside for the perdition, for the fire of ungodly men. Let's look at a couple of other verses. We go in our Bibles over to Isaiah chapter 34. Isaiah 34, verse 8 and 9. Isaiah is the middle of the Bible. So you go right to the middle of the Bible, you find the book of Isaiah, chapter 34. And let's read, we'll start in here in verse 8. So Isaiah 34, beginning in verse 8. The Bible says, for it is the day of the Lord's vengeance and the year of recompenses or rewards for the controversy of Zion. And the streams thereof, this is of the earth, shall be turned into pitch and the dust thereof into brimstone and the land thereof shall become burning pitch. And so the Bible describes the surface of this earth once again as the location of hell. Notice what it said in in Revelation chapter 20, that God rains hellfire down on them. You find that again in the book of Psalms. Just back a little bit. Psalms, spelt with a P. Psalms chapter 11. Psalms 11. So this is the method that God uses in relationship to hellfire. Psalms 11 and verse 6. The Bible says this, Upon the wicked he shall rain snares, fire, and brimstone. And a horrible tempest, this shall be the portion of their cup. So notice God's method in relationship to hellfire. The Bible says that God is reigning it. Isn't that what it says? Yeah. Okay, so God reigns it. Now we have, at this particular point, a major problem. You see, hellfire is on the surface of the earth around the new Jerusalem. So here's what you have. You have all the righteous inside the city, right? You have all the wicked on the outside. Now, typically, people will tell me, well, hell burns forever and ever and ever eternally and never stops burning. And so then I stop and think about this for a moment and say, okay, I'm a righteous person, I'm inside the city and I'm looking out through the walls because the Bible says it's clear as crystal. And for the rest of eternity, all I ever get to do is to sit there and watch people being tortured. Who's going to suffer more? I tend to think the people on the inside would suffer more, don't you? Yeah. And the Bible doesn't teach that, so this leads us to our next great fact in relationship to hellfire, fact number four, and that is that hellfire does not burn forever. You say, what about all those passages in the Bible that talks about hell burning forever? We're going to get there, and we're going to read them before we do. Let me show you some things that the Bible says about our earth. Matthew chapter 5 and verse 5. Matthew chapter 5 and verse 5, you find the Bible says, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. This earth is our inheritance. Do you want to inherit an earth that is on fire? No. Good. I'm glad. Well, then let's go over to our next passage and let's look at 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 13. 2 Peter, down near Revelation again. 2 Peter, page 491, 490, chapter 3 and 
verse 13, where Peter says, Nevertheless, we according to his promise look for a new heavens and a new earth wherein lives righteousness. Do you want to live in that earth? Yeah, I do. But I don't want to live there if it's on fire. And we could read one verse after another, after another, after another. The Bible says that Abraham was promised that he would be, and his descendants, the heirs of this world. This is our inheritance right here. So we have to ask ourselves, what is the wages of sin? Do you really believe that? Yeah, I really believe that. I actually believe that the wages of sin is not eternal life. I believe that it's death. The Bible says, Ezekiel chapter 18, we read it last night, the soul that sins, it shall what? Die. Whereabouts is eternal life anywhere promised to the wicked in the Bible? John chapter 3 and verse 16, what does it say? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not what? Perish but have what? Eternal life. So reverse that equation. Whosoever does not believe in him will do what? Perish and will not have what? Eternal life. You see, it's just that simple. The Bible doesn't promise anything but death to the wicked. Eternal life is promised to those who give their lives to Jesus Christ. And so we raise the question, what about those passages in the Bible that speak about unquenchable fire or eternal fire or everlasting fire? Those are a good question, don't you think? We need to look at those ones and find out what does the Bible actually say in relationship to those. So we're going to take a moment to look at them. Let's begin with unquenchable fire. And let's turn to Isaiah chapter 47. Isaiah chapter 47. And while we're turning there, let me ask you this question. What does the word quench mean? That's old English, unquenchable fire. Isaiah chapter 47. It means to extinguish, doesn't it? To put out. That's right. All right. So let's say that you light a fire up here on Mount Warning one day. At the end of a long drought, it's 45 degrees that day, and it's blowing about 50 knots. What is going to happen to that fire? Can you put it out? No, it's unquenchable fire. You can't put it out. However, will that fire burn forever? No, because sooner or later, it's going to reach the coast and the Pacific Ocean makes a rather large containment line, doesn't it? Yeah, so let's say you have a fire like that. You cannot put it out. To quench a fire means to put it out, to extinguish it. Unquenchable fire is fire that you cannot extinguish by any means. Now, when God pours fire down on the wicked, do you think that any of the wicked will be able to rescue themselves from that fire? Can they extinguish that fire? Of course they can't. It's unquenchable fire. But does that mean that it will not go out? Where will we go? We're going to Isaiah, won't we? 47. Isaiah 47 and verse 14. And here's what the Bible says. Behold, they shall be as stubble. The fire shall burn them. And we know about stubble around here when we see the, the sugar canes burning, don't we? 
The fire shall burn them. They shall not deliver themselves from the power of the flame. There shall not be a coal to warm at, nor a fire to sit before it. How much is left? Nothing. There's not even a coal left. Let's go to Jeremiah chapter 17. Isaiah, then Jeremiah. So the next book of the Bible, chapter 17. Jeremiah chapter 17 and verse 27. I find this one fascinating. Jeremiah 17 and verse 27, it says this, But if you will not listen unto me to hallow the Sabbath day and not bear a burden entering in at the gates of Jerusalem, he's speaking to his people at this time, on the Sabbath day, then I will kindle a fire in the gates thereof and it shall devour the palaces of Jerusalem and it shall not be what? Quenched. Let me ask you, did Nebuchadnezzar come and do just that? He did. He came and he lit a fire in the gates and he lit a fire in the temple and could they quench it? No, they couldn't quench it. It was unquenchable fire. Is it still burning today? No, of course not, because it went out when it ran out of fuel and that's what unquenchable fire is. Unquenchable fire goes out when it runs out of fuel. So we need to move on then and ask the next one. What about eternal or everlasting fire. Let's look at eternal fire first. Turn with me to Revelation chapter 1. Revelation chapter 1, and you're all thinking, well, what are you going to find in Revelation chapter 1 about eternal fire? You're not going to find anything in Revelation chapter 1 about eternal fire. You're going to find it in the book of Jude. Where is Jude? Just before Revelation And that's the easy way to find the book of Jude. It's a small one. So if you go to Revelation 1, Jude is right there. Okay, go down to verse 7. Verse 7, the Bible says, Even as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities about them in like manner, giving themselves over to fornication and going after strange flesh, are set forth for an example, suffering the vengeance of what? Eternal fire. Now, one of the mistakes that we often make is that we ascribe meanings to words that were not necessarily ascribed to those words by the people who wrote them. We've come to it with a Western mindset. I could show you, I was talking to somebody about this the other night, I could show you 57 places in the Bible that I've found where the word forever comes to an end. Now, we actually use it that way ourselves. Did you know that? Yeah, we do. Let's say that, and I used this example when I was talking about it the other day, let's say that somebody dropped you off here this evening and said, I will pick you up at the end of the program. So the program finishes, and you go out here, and you're standing there, and you're waiting, and half an hour later they turn up, and you're like, oh, I've been waiting here forever. Have you been waiting there forever? No? You've been waiting there for half an hour. Okay, so we don't even use it in that context all the time. So we then need to look at the context of this one. The Bible says that the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah suffered the vengeance of what kind of fire? Are they still burning? No, they're not still burning. Let's look at it in even deeper context by going to 2 Peter chapter 2. Because maybe you would say, well, that's actually referring to the people, the inhabitants, not the city not the buildings. 2 Peter chapter 2 and verse 6. It says, And turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into what? 
ashes, condemned them with an overthrow, making them an example unto those that after should live what? Yeah, it's talking about the people, isn't it? And what does the Bible say that Jesus turned, that God turned the people into? Ashes. In other words, the fire went out. Isn't that so? Yeah. Let's see if this is backed up anywhere else in the Bible. Go with me to Malachi. In fact, if you want to find this one real easy, go to Matthew chapter 1. Because Malachi is the other side of the page. Malachi chapter 4. So if you go to Matthew chapter 1, Malachi is the other side of the page. And Malachi chapter 4 and verse 1. And here's what the Bible says. For behold, the day comes that shall burn as an oven, and all the proud, yes, and all that do wickedly shall be what? Stubble. How well does stubble burn? It burns really well, doesn't it? Notice how well this stubble burns. The day that comes shall burn them up, says the Lord of hosts, that it shall leave them neither root nor branch. This stubble fire, when it burns, the wicked burns so thoroughly that it doesn't even leave any roots in the ground. That's thorough, isn't it? Verse 3, it says, And you shall tread down the wicked, for they shall be what? Ashes under the soul's of your feet. Does the, Bible, does the Bible talk about Satan and his angels as well? Go to Ezekiel. Ezekiel chapter 28. It's page 348. Speaking about Lucifer, Satan, it says, you have defiled your sanctuaries by the multitude of your iniquities, by the iniquity of your traffic. Therefore will I bring forth a fire from the midst of you. It shall devour you and I will bring you to ashes upon the earth in the sight of all those that behold you. What is the ultimate end of Satan according to the Bible? Ashes. Is that good news? You know, this is fantastic news, friends. This is the best thing that you will find because when we studied quite some nights ago, we found out that God hates evil, doesn't he? And God has an agenda to rid the universe of evil. Why would God then want to preserve evil for the rest of eternity? That's not what God is about. God is about restoring our universe back to what it was before sin existed, but in a way that sin will never, ever, ever come back again. Why would he want to keep it there and to preserve it? The Bible says that it doesn't, that God turns them into ashes. Well, let's go over to, let's go to Mark. Mark chapter 9. We've got an interesting one over here. Mark chapter 9 and verse 45. And here it's a repeat of Matthew where it says, Jesus says, if your foot offends you, cut it off. It's better for you to end a halt into life than having two feet to be thrown into hell, into the fire that never shall be quenched where their worm dies not and their fire is not quenched. Now that's an interesting passage. Did you know? The Bible says you all have a worm. Well, what is the Bible talking about when the Bible says where the worm doesn't die and the fire is not quenched? Do we have a worm somewhere inside of us? That's a little bit of a scary thought, isn't it? If I have a worm inside of me anywhere, I want it to die. I'll go to the doctor and buy some poison for it. So what is Jesus talking about in this particular passage? 
This is an interesting one because this passage does not mention hell. It doesn't mention hell. And you're sitting there saying, yeah, but my Bible says hell, right? Your Bible says hell, doesn't it? The Greek word for hell is the word Hades, and it literally means the place of the dead or the grave. Here, the word is not Hades, it is Gehenna. So hell is not actually even mentioned in the passage, but it's translated as hell. So you're asking me the question, well, what then is Gehenna? Gehenna is a noun, it is a name for a place. And it's a place in the valley of Hinnom, just outside of Jerusalem, a very steep valley. And it was the local garbage dump. And so when Jesus is speaking this uh, section right here, he's actually looking at it. He can see it. There is Gehenna and there is the garbage dump. Now we have to understand this was an agrarian society where the primary means of transport was with animals and they were also used expensively, extensively for food and any animals that died by themselves could not be eaten. And so they were thrown into the garbage dump along with any beggars who didn't have any relatives who were wealthy enough to pay for a burial. They got thrown into the garbage dump as well. Now, you can't have a garbage dump that just builds up, builds up, builds up, builds up, builds up, can you? And so they had people there whose job it was, as it is today, to tend the local rubbish tip. And their job was to burn the rubbish. And so what they would do when the, fire, when the, when the bodies of the animals and the, and, the, and, the, and, the, and the people that came in to that rubbish tip, they would set them aside to dry out. Because you're 70% water, it's kind of hard to burn. And so in that whole process, one of the most effective means of those bodies drying out was that they would fill with worms. We call them maggots, right? So the maggots would go through the body, the body get all dried out, and then they'd throw them onto the fire. Gehenna was known for two things. There was always a fire burning in Gehenna, number one. Number two, there were always worms in Gehenna because there were always dead bodies there that were being consumed. In fact, Gehenna was known for three things. If you went into Gehenna, you didn't come out and you faced total annihilation. And so Jesus is giving an object lesson here. He's like, okay, if you want to see what happens to the wicked, look over here at the garbage dump. This is what hellfire is like. This is where people face total annihilation. They are burned until there is nothing left. Revelation chapter 20. Notice with me verse 9. The Bible says, and they, that's the wicked, went up on the surface of the earth, and surrounded the camp of the saints about and the beloved city, and fire came down from God out of heaven and did what? Preserved them? You sure? You sure it doesn't say preserved? Some people read this and they they say preserved. Okay, here's what I'll do for you. I'm going to do you all a favour this evening. Just in case you think the word devour might actually mean preserve. Here's what I will do for you. There is something that I particularly like. You see, I grew up in Tasmania, and so I really like apple pies. So, if you're confused about the meaning of the word devour, if you bring an apple pie on Tuesday night, 
I will publicly demonstrate for you the meaning of the word. Does that sound reasonable? And you will find it does not mean, does not have anything to do with preserve. Well, people go on and they say, but yeah, but what about the next verse? You see, the next verse says the exact opposite. It says the exact opposite. It says in verse 10, the devil that deceived them was cast into the lake of fire. Well, we read that in Ezekiel 18. And brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are and shall be tormented day and night for how long? Forever and ever. Now you have a major problem on your hands, don't you? Because verse 9 says that they are devoured and that only has one meaning. And yet verse 10 says, no, 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 they last forever and ever. How do we deal with that? Very simple, as we mentioned before. There's at least 57 places in the Bible that I've found where the word forever comes to an end. Let's look at a couple of them very quick. Let's look at one in 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel chapter 1 and verse 22. And here the Bible speaks about the story of Samuel before he was born and Hannah, his mother, she did not go up to the temple for she said to her husband, I will not go up until the child is weaned and then I will bring him that he may live there before the Lord for how long? Did Samuel live forever at the temple in Shiloh? Is he still living at the temple in Shiloh? No, in fact, he retired to the town of Ramah. So how long is forever? If you go back to verse 11, we find out exactly what Hannah had in mind. In verse 11, she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your handmaid and remember me and not forget your handmaid, but will give unto your handmaid a man-child, then I will give him unto the Lord all the days of his life. So how long was forever in Hannah's mind? All the days of his life. How long is forever in hellfire? All the days of their life. And I imagine when God pours out hellfire, that's going to be pretty quick kind of fire. So we need to stop and understand exactly what it is that is taking place right here. One of the things that we looked at last night is that God has a judgment that takes place in open court before the universe, before he comes back to this earth. So the whole universe can see and know that God's decisions are just, they are pure, they are holy, they are all loving. Then we found that during a thousand years that we, the righteous, have the opportunity, the Bible says, to judge for ourselves. Ask any question that we want. And during that time period, we can see that God's judgment is righteous, it's just, and it's all loving. What is God doing here? He doesn't need to convince us. He needs to remove any seed of doubt that could possibly arise at any time or place so that sin won't come back again. Then we found at the end of the thousand years that the wicked are raised back to life just in case they have something they can say where they can say, wait a minute, God, you missed out this. The Bible says that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And when the wicked testify themselves that Jesus is Lord, that yes, they have rejected him and they cannot be saved, what does God do? He destroys them. You see, every good thing that we have in our life comes from God. Every experience of happiness that we experience, the Bible says every good and perfect gift comes down from God. Isn't that so? And so therefore we know this. Without God in our lives, it is impossible to experience anything good. It is impossible to experience any level of happiness whatsoever at all. 
Now, how many of you have pets? Okay. How many of you have ever had to put down one of your pets? Yeah, that's awful, isn't it? I grew up on a farm, we grew up in the bush, and so we had all kinds of animals, and so, you know, that's the kind of thing. And sometimes we would get an animal that was sick. Call the vet, vet can't do anything, and so what do we do? We put that animal down, don't we? Do we put that animal down because we hate that animal? We think, you stupid animal, I can't stand you, you terrible creature, I can't believe you got sick. Is that how it works? Is that why we put the animal down? No. We put that animal down because we love that animal and we can't bear to see them suffer. Isn't that so? Every one of you who have taken the life of an animal have put one down. You know you did it because you loved that animal. Why does Jesus destroy the wicked? Because he cannot bear to see them suffer. They cannot experience good without him. Hellfire, the destruction of the wicked, is an act of mercy and love by God. And when they're dead, the Bible says, that is forever. It is the punishment that is forever, not the punishing. There's a good one in Jonah, actually. Jonah. The Bible tells the story of Jonah. Jonah was swallowed by a whale. He was in there for three days, the Bible says. Not the only person who's been swallowed by a whale and survived it. But he was there for three days. And he described the event in Jonah chapter 2 and verse 5. He said, The water surrounded about me, even to the soul. The depths closed around me. The weeds were wrapped around my head. I went down to the bottoms of the mountains. The earth with her bars was about me forever. Yet have you brought up my life from corruption, O Lord my God. The Bible says... Jonah says he was down there in the belly of that fish forever. Do you think it felt like forever for Jonah? I reckon five minutes in there. In fact, I reckon 30 seconds in there would feel like forever. Let alone three days. While you're in Jonah, turn back over the page to the book of Obadiah. Uh, The book of Obadiah chapter 1. and verse 16, the Bible speaks about the wicked and it says, For as you have drunk upon my holy mountain... So shall all the heathen drink continue. Yea, they shall drink. This is the wrath of God. They shall swallow down and they shall be as though they had not been. The Bible is so plain. We could go from one verse to another, to another, to another. The Bible plainly says that hellfire does not burn forever. Hellfire goes out. In fact, if we look at some of the words, these are some of the words that we have read here this evening from Scripture. We've read the word destroy, the word consume, the word destruction, the word burn up, the word devour, the word shall not be, ashes, no coal left, no fire to sit in front of it. Let me ask you a question, friends. Do all of these words here mean the exact opposite of what we think they mean? Because the only way you can have an eternal hellfire is to turn every single one of those words around and say, oh, no, 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 they actually mean the exact opposite of that. Friends, you can't do that. This is what the Bible says in relationship to hellfire. You know, when I study this subject right here, it reveals to me the love of God. You see, there are people today 
who would make God out to be more evil than Nero or Stalin or Hitler or Osama bin Laden, Saddam Hussein, Gaddafi, whoever else it might be. All of these men tortured people, didn't they? And yet all of them eventually allowed their victims to die. Isn't that so? And yet we have Christians today who come along and they say, oh, no, 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 no. God would never do that. If if you don't want to be his friend, he's going to burn you forever and he will never let you die. You will suffer through the ceaseless ages of eternity. My question is, what is that actually going to accomplish? It accomplishes nothing. You know, in 150 billion years from now and people are still suffering and still suffering, what is that accomplishing all those years down the track? That's not accomplishing anything. Is it revealing to us that God is love? Is that what it is revealing? Is it making the universe a clean place where there is no sin in it anymore? No, that's not what's happening. Not at all. We make God out to be worse and no wonder, no wonder when you get two extremes on this. You have one extreme that says hellfire lasts forever and people can't stomach that and say, oh, okay, well, that that can't be God, so then hellfire doesn't exist. But to do that, you've got to get rid of half of the Bible. And so you run into problems the devil will push you to one extreme or the other. What benefit is, is God vindictive? Does he gain some kind of sick satisfaction from it? You know, in, in, in 20 billion years, is God looking down like, hmm, wow, that looks good down there. Is that? No, of course not. Does God gain some kind of satisfaction from being revenge? Are we saved by fear? The Bible says that we're saved because we love Jesus. Jesus says, if you love me, keep my commandments. That's the only service that God actually accepts. Let me show you a couple of verses, friends, from the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 21. Revelation chapter 21. The Bible speaks about a new heavens and a new earth. We read about it last night. The Bible says that the wicked are destroyed. They are devoured in the flames. And then the Bible says that God goes out and recreates our world in our eyesight. Revelation chapter 21, verse 1, the Bible says, I saw a new heavens and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth were passed away, and there was no more sea. In verse 2, backtracking, it says, I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will live with them, and they will be his people, and God himself shall be with them and be their God. And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes, and there shall be no more what? Death, and no more what? Sorrow nor crying, neither shall there be any more what? Can that verse be fulfilled while hellfire exists? No. You can't have that verse if hellfire is still there. The former things have passed away. God is going to create a new, a clean universe. One where the Bible says that righteousness lives. Yes, God will not force people to be saved, but he won't torture them either. Revelation 22, verse 1 says, And he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding out of the throne of God and out of the Lamb. Now, these, these last chapters here are just the best. You should just go read, read chapter 21 and 22 for homework. 
In the middle of the street of it, either side of the river was the tree of life, which bare 12 manner of fruits, or 12 kinds of fruits, and yielded her fruit every month. And the leaves of the trees were for the healing of the nations. And there shall be no more a curse, but the throne of God and the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall serve him. And they shall see his face, and his name shall be in their foreheads. And there shall be no night there, and they need no candle, neither the light of the sun, for the Lord God gives them light. They shall reign forever and ever. And he said unto me, These sayings are faithful and true. And the Lord God of the holy prophets sent his angels to show unto his servants the things which must shortly be done. Behold, I come quickly. And then it goes down to verse 17, and it says, And the spirit and the bride say, Come. And let him that is a thirst say, Come. And let him that is a thirst come, and whosoever let him will, let him take the water of life freely. Jesus freely offers to us the water of life here this evening. Don't you want to receive the water of life? Don't you want to come to Jesus right now? I know that I do. Who wants to receive Jesus right now? Praise God, friends. Let's bow our heads as we close with prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for your incredible love for us. We thank you that we can come to you, that you are a God of love. You are not a a God of vindictiveness. You are not a God of torture. But you are a God of love and mercy and justice. That you'll give everyone a chance right now. That That you will act in love when you eventually cleanse the universe of sin. And Father, what a colossal mistake it would be for any one of us to be a part of that group that is wiped out at the end of time because you freely offer to us the water of life. And we pray that we will drink that water of life this evening, right now, as you come into our hearts. We ask this in Jesus' name. been listening to an M24 media production of The Prophetic Code by speaker-presenter Lyle Southwell. For more information, visit knowthecode.global or call 3ABN Australia Radio on 02-4973-3456.